Turn with me, if you would, in your copies of God's Word to Acts chapter 2. Today we're considering verses 14 through 36. This is Peter's Pentecost sermon. Today we're going to have a sermon on a sermon. And I want to start with this initial question of what should a sermon look like? And is that even an objective question to ask or is it subjective? You know, where sermons just are as various as the ministers who preach them. You know, in our, in our own town, I, I, I think you'd, I'd find it very interesting to take a uh, sermon from each one of these churches. So you take a sermon from Oakland Baptist and St. Paul's Episcopal and Crosswind and First Methodist and Biggersville Pentecostal and take all of them together and compare those sermons. There'd be a lot of variety. Every pastor is going to have ideas and opinions on what a sermon should look like. But what should a sermon look like? I believe that Acts chapter 2 gives us a model. The sermon that we're about to read by the Apostle Peter gives us a model. And it's my opinion that the closer our sermons can be to Peter's sermon, the better. I, I think it would be wise for us to look at this sermon and to imitate it. This sermon was preached on the very day the Holy Spirit was poured out and you had 3,000 souls come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Might be a good sermon to imitate. Well, you might say, okay, that's great, John, but this isn't a room full of preachers. This isn't some pastor's conference. Are you going to make us sit here while you wax poetic about what the ideal sermon should look like? Well, I'd like to say that it doesn't matter if you're a minister or not. If you are a Christian, you will talk to people about Jesus. Ministers are not the only people who talk about Jesus. If you are a Christian, you will talk to people about Jesus. And looking at Peter's words here can prove a great help, I think. Speaking about Peter's sermon, James Montgomery Boyce said this. He said, quote, It is a sermon every preacher should study. Yet more than that, it is a sermon all Christians should study because although in a formal sense, most Christians do not preach sermons, all, nevertheless, have many opportunities to speak about Jesus. Right? Right? You may not stand up here behind the pulpit and preach, but we all have opportunities to speak about Jesus. What is going to inform our discussion and the words that we say? Peter helps us here. So don't check out. This is not a a sermon just for pastors. It's for all of us. Before we look at his sermon, let's ask for God's help. Father God, as we open your word, we, uh, we demonstrate our trust in it, that it brings 
life and light and that it is living and that it is true. And so, Father, we ask that you would work this morning. Send your spirit to do what we cannot. Send your spirit to bring illumination and light. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. Would you stand and read with me? Let's stand together. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall turn to darkness and the moon to blood before the day the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And David said concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about our patriarch David that he both died and was buried And his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses." Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are hearing and seeing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord 
and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Now, before we get started, I want to give you an outline that I'm going to follow in breaking down this text, and I need to give credit where credit is due. I completely stole this outline from Dr. Albert Moeller. His insight was very helpful, and I hope you find it helpful as well. There, this morning, I had the thought that there are probably <clears throat> there are hundreds of different ways you could preach this text. I mean, I could probably preach the same text again next week and go in a completely different direction. But this is the direction I'm headed this morning. And the outline that Dr. Moeller gives us is the man, the method, and the message. So the man, the method, and the message. So let's talk about the man first. You remember back a couple Sundays ago, we looked at the very beginning of Acts chapter 2, the Pentecost. It was a very busy time, one of the major uh, holiday feasts for the Jewish people. Jerusalem would have been absolutely packed. And early in the morning, the Holy Spirit comes roaring down and fills the room where the apostles are sitting. And what happens? We're told that they are filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in foreign languages that they did not know. I made the comparison. It would be akin to me uh, instantaneously being empowered to preach in Korean, a language I have no familiarity with at all. That's what happens. They are filled with the Spirit. They spill out into the streets and the marketplaces. They begin to speak of the wondrous works of God in foreign languages, and crowds begin to gather. And these foreigners, these Jews from distant lands who are in town for the holiday, they hear the gospel in their own native tongue, and they're perplexed. They're, they say, aren't these Galileans? How, how are these men speaking in our native language? What does this mean? Well, Peter is going to stand up and tell them. We're told that Peter, standing with the 11 other apostles, lifted up his voice and addressed the crowd, and so began his sermon. Let's talk for a few moments about the man preaching the sermon. There's two things to see. The first is that Peter is bold. He's bold. Just 50 days earlier, the same crowd that was gathered was screaming, crucify him, talking about the Lord Jesus. These crowds had chosen the murderer Barabbas over Jesus. And now, just 50 days later, Peter stands up and he begins to preach about the very same one that they crucified. And you better believe that so Peter is preaching in the shadow of the temple and those same chief priests who conspired against Christ, you better believe that they were watching and listening like hawks plotting their next hit. Peter was speaking boldly. Where'd that boldness come from? Not Peter. It did not originate with him. We know exactly what Peter would do. What does he do? He, we saw in the Gospels, he denies Christ three times. He even 
cusses at a young girl just to make the point that he is not affiliated with Jesus at all. But now, filled with the Spirit, he is bold. It's the Spirit that gives boldness. You know, being in America and having the religious freedom that we have, we don't face anything like the danger Peter faced. We don't face danger like what we're going to see in Acts 7 with Stephen. I know that there are other places in the world where that danger absolutely exists, but not not for us, not here. What keeps us from being bold, I believe, most of the time is our fear of man. What's the worst thing that someone can do to us? if we speak about Christ and they're offended. I mean, at at worst, maybe they don't hire us, we don't get a promotion, maybe we get fired at worst. What else? I mean, we, we, we don't want to be offensive, we don't want to make waves, we don't want to be silently excised from social circles, and so we just go along to get along. The first thing I want us to see here is that when we speak about Christ, either from a pulpit or in some daily context where you are talking with a friend, family member, neighbor, whoever, we have to be bold. And this doesn't mean that we pick fights. It doesn't mean that we aren't gentle and we aren't gracious and we aren't loving. We should be all of those things. But it means that we're honest. And we tell people about Jesus, who he is and what he's done. And then let the chips fall where they may. We need to pray for more boldness to tell the truth about Jesus. That's what Peter does here. The second thing we see is not only is Peter the recipient of boldness, but he's also a recipient of grace. Just remember who he is. This is the man who promised Christ, that he would never leave him nor forsake him. And yet, the moment things get dark and scary and dangerous, he's gone. He denies his Lord. And when we actually consider what Peter did, it really is astounding that he is the one standing up on the day of Pentecost and preaching this sermon. Again, this, is, this should be a very hopeful thing for sinners to recognize. Just just like seeing Manasseh forgiven in our reading just now, seeing Manasseh, uh, the Lord, responding to Manasseh's humbleness, I mean, this should be a welcome thing for sinners to read, that someone like Peter could still be used by God in this way. Peter had received grace. We see this at the end of John's gospel there on the seashore. The risen Lord restores Peter and then commissions him and then gives him the Holy Spirit and Peter will serve the church there in Jerusalem. In Peter, you have a a person who has felt both intense sorrow over his own sin and also the joy of of redemption and restoration. I would encourage us that, all of us, that when we speak 
to others about the Lord Jesus, we must be intimately aware of the grace that we ourselves have received. And that grace should temper our speech. We don't need to speak as those who are perfect. We speak as orphans who want to tell other orphans about the goodness of our Heavenly Father who has adopted us. We remember and we relish the grace that we have freely received. And that grace will season and flavor the words we speak to others about Jesus. That should be the case for a man speaking from the pulpit or you talking with a friend in a coffee shop or a co-worker in a break room or with a friend fishing on a boat. No matter what it is, words about Christ seasoned with grace. That's the man. There's more we can say about Peter, but that's all we'll say today. Second thing is the method. This is my shortest point. Short and simple. What was the method of Peter's preaching? He points them to the scriptures. I mean, do you you realize that from verses 14 through 36, the verses we just read, that's 22 verses total, 12 of those are direct quotations of Scripture. So I did a little math here. That would be 54.55% of what we've just read is a direct quotation of Scripture. What is Peter doing? He is pointing his hearers to Scripture. We can assume that in the time period between you've got Christ's resurrection and Peter's restoration over here, and then on this other side you have the the day of Pentecost. And during that time, Peter, along with the others, had been in their Old Testament studying passages that spoke about the person and work of Jesus, who he is and what he would do. Peter gives us three of these, Joel 2, Psalm 16, and Psalm 110. He's pointing them to the Scripture. And what we see Peter do is what I try to do. It's what um, we as Presbyterians try to do every Sunday. We turn to a passage of Scripture. We explain it. We apply it. And then call for a response. We turn to a passage of Scripture, we explain it, we apply it, and call for a response. Now, why, why do this? Why, why this message? Because, I mean, you can, Peter had lived with Jesus for three years. Peter had lots of stories. He had all kinds of inside stories that other people wouldn't know. I mean, he was kind of in this inner circle of sorts. I'm, Peter, why didn't Peter just get up and just start talking? Tell about his experience with Christ and things he remembered Christ saying. Why, why did he point back to the Old Testament scriptures? Well, it's because the Bible is inherently trustworthy and we aren't. We hear Jesus say of scripture, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Or the psalmist in Psalm 119, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. What does the Bible say about 
the mind of the natural man, our, our, our sinful minds? Well, it tells us that sin affects our minds, it affects our thoughts, it affects our reasoning. The Bible speaks of a depraved mind, minds that are hardened, minds that are blinded, the futility of their minds, those who are darkened in their understanding. We know that the longer we walk with Christ, we will be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We can't, de- we can't depend on our minds. I remember as I was going through ordination in the Presbyterian Church in America, I was given the advice to memorize the Westminster Shorter Catechism and then to use it as much as possible. So uh, I was told, John, don't trust yourself when you're before the credentials committee and when you're before the floor presbytery. Don't just get up there and start babbling. Don't trust yourself. Have that catechism in your back pocket, the back pocket of your mind, and when you're asked to define something, spit out the catechism at every possible opportunity. Why, why tell you that? It's because as Christians who talk to others about Jesus, we need to stay as close to the Bible as possible. We don't lean on our own understanding. We stand on his word and we trust it. When I was going up for ordination, I demonstrated my trust in the catechism. I would be asked to define the Trinity. And I would rattle off what the, what the catechism said about the Trinity. I was demonstrating my trust in it by staying close. You will demonstrate your trust in God's word or the lack of trust by how close you stay to it. How often do you bring it up? How often do you cite it when you're speaking to someone about Christ? So where are we at? The man is Peter. The method is pointing people to the scriptures and staying close to the scriptures. And the last is the message. And there are five points here that I'm going to fly. I'm going to fly through four of them and have fun in one of them. And, uh, As a Presbyterian minister, you know which one I'm going to camp out in. We're going to go through five of these. And we see that Peter's message centers on Christ. And that makes sense. Because his method involves lots of Scripture, and Scripture is all about Jesus. And so the sermon is all about Jesus. And the first thing Peter communicates is that Jesus Christ is still working. He's telling them, you you tried to end his work permanently by crucifying him, but he's still working. That is the whole point of what's going on behind Pentecost. You remember the accusation that was being hurled at the Christians? Ah, they're drunk. They got a hold of some new wine, and that's why they're babbling nonsense in foreign languages. That was the slander that was made by some who were there, and Peter responds by quoting Joel 2. And he says, What you're witnessing is not drunkenness. It is the fulfillment of a prophecy that was made hundreds of years ago. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit. Peter tells them, You are witnessing that right now. You are witnessing Joel's words fulfilled right before you. Our Lord is still working. His Spirit is bringing the gospel and it will be preached through His people and it will spread like wildfire across 
His creation. He is what is behind this day of Pentecost. Second thing we see is a reminder of Christ's identity. His identity was attested to by the signs and wonders. We see that in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Peter is saying this man made his true identity known through the mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him. And you saw them. You witnessed these signs. Some of you know people who are directly affected by these signs and wonders. Clear evidence was given to you that this is not just some mere man from Nazareth. He's the Son of God. But did you believe him? Did you submit to his authority? Did you fall down in worship? No. You crucified him. That brings us to our third point. This is the interesting one. And I could easily and very excitedly spend an entire sermon just on verse 23. I'm not. Maybe some other time for fun. Verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Okay, so let's get this straight. Jesus was delivered up to be crucified according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And lawless men crucified and killed him. How does that work? How do both of those things fit together? Well, before we stick them together, let's talk about each one individually. First is the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Jesus' crucifixion was not an accident. It was not a failure of his ministry. It did not surprise the Father and catch him off guard. The crucifixion of Jesus was the plan all along. It was the plan from all eternity that Jesus Christ the Lamb of God would be sent to die on a cross for sin. God was completely sovereign over all the events surrounding the death of Jesus. Nothing happened that was beyond his control. Nothing happened outside of his will. Even Judas and his betrayal. But then on the other hand, we have these men who are held culpable for the death of Jesus. We have Judas, who is held culpable for the death of Jesus. Peter describes these men as lawless. And Peter says, you crucified him. You killed him. Now, how do we reconcile those two things? There's a question, is God sovereign and is man responsible? And the answer is yes. God is sovereign And human beings are responsible. Theologians call this the doctrine of concurrence. Concurrence explains how these two seemingly contradictory truths harmonize beautifully together. And I'm going to see if I can do this very quickly. Our God is sovereign. 
He does not wait to see how history unfolds. Rather, he orchestrates all things according to the counsel of his will. We see that in Ephesians 1.11. God has a plan, a plan that was ordained in eternity past. And when it's the appointed time to bring about that eternal plan, God works in and through the real decisions of real people. When it's time for him to accomplish his eternal plan, he works in and through the real decisions of real people. We see this all over scripture. There's a great example in 1 Kings 22. If you're interested, the prophet Micaiah and King Ahab, it is a fantastic story. It's really cool. You see this clearly. Uh, Paul and the shipwreck in Acts 27. We'll get to that maybe a year from now. Um, but that, that's, that's an example of this, of, of human responsibility and God's sovereignty working together. But the most famous example to see this is the Joseph narrative at the end of Genesis. And I know we went to Joseph last week. We're going back to him. Remember, Joseph's brothers, after they learned that Joseph was alive, they thought, uh-oh, after they learned he's alive, and not only is he alive, he's second in command in Egypt, they think, uh-oh, he's going to get his revenge. He's going to kill us. He's going to do something terrible to us. He's going to do to us what we did to him. But what does Joseph famously say? You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Think of it this way. Was it God's definite plan and foreknowledge that Joseph would be thrown into a pit and then sold into slavery by his brothers? Yes. Also, did Joseph's brothers do something wicked and evil against their brother? Yes. How do these two fit together? The doctrine of concurrence. The mystery of God. We're given two truths here, and we have to accept them at face value. And it's that our God is sovereign and we are responsible. Now, there are going to be times where we face incredibly hard times of providence. The death of a family member, a beloved one, the maybe a divorce, maybe a sickness. Something happens that is incredibly painful. And in that time, we remember that God is able, in his power, in only a way that he can, to bring something good and glorious out of something so dark and painful. I mean, look at the cross. What an example. Judas and Pilate and the chief priests and all the people screaming for Barabbas, they meant evil against Jesus. And they aren't getting a pat on the back like, oh, you really, you really helped the plan of God come along. Well done. No, they meant evil against Jesus. That's what Peter is saying here. You men meant evil towards Jesus Christ, but God trumped you. And he used your wicked actions to accomplish a mighty salvation on behalf of his people. 
That's all I'm going to say. I told you we, you could very easily spend an entire sermon just on verse 23. We got to go. Uh, we got to move on. Fourth, Peter preaches the burial and the resurrection of Christ. I hope the resurrection is still fresh in your minds. We're only one week out from Easter. We're given an amazing verse in verse 24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then Peter goes on to quote from Psalm 16, a a psalm of David. And he asks a very simple question. He says, brothers, King David died and was buried and his tomb is still here with us. We aren't going to do this, but we could theoretically go and dig up King David's bones. And since that is true, who is David talking about here? Who is David talking about when he says, you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption? By the way, if you weren't here Monday, Thursday, and you've always wondered why does the Apostles' Creed say he descended into hell, uh, I preached on that on Monday, Thursday, and it's on the website if you're interested. But we, don't, we can't get into Hades and all of that tonight, but, or this morning. But who is Peter talking about? Who, who was not abandoned in the realm of the dead? Peter says that King David prophesied. King David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. He was raised up, and Peter says, we are all witnesses. Fifth and final thing is Christ's ascension. Peter quotes King David again, this time from Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So here, David is citing a word of God in which God tells another person who is greater than David that this other person will sit at his right hand until his enemies are made a footstool. So who would that person be? The, the, the covenant God of Israel is speaking to a Lord of King David. The covenant God of Israel is speaking to a King of Kings that he will sit at his right hand. I mean, there's no way that David would be speaking about a mere human descendant. I mean, the fathers uh, had authority over their sons. There's no way that some mere human descendant is going to have this much authority over King David. And he's speaking about the Son of God. And Peter ends in verse 36 with, Let all the house of Israel therefore know that God has made him both Lord and Christ. That he is king of all, he is ruler of all, and he sits in the seat of cosmic authority, and one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. That is the message that Peter gives. Now, what's the crowd's reaction? Well, we're going to get to that next week in verse, beginning in verse 37. But, but I want to end with this. Again, I mentioned this before, but notice, in this sermon, Peter doesn't give any of Christ's teachings. 
He quotes David twice, and then he quotes Joel, but he doesn't quote Jesus. You would think that Peter would quote Jesus in this sermon all about Jesus, but he doesn't. He doesn't tell them what Jesus said. He doesn't tell them what Jesus commanded. He doesn't give them any parables. Why not? Peter does not tell them what they need to do for Jesus. He tells them what Jesus did for them. Remember who Peter is talking to. Peter is not talking to believers. He's not talking to those who have the Spirit and have been born again. He's, Peter is talking to unbelievers. He's talking to non-Christians. And what good would it do for him to tell an unbeliever to go and do what Jesus said? They can't do that. I mean, I, I think we have that. I think we have that uh, problem ourselves. Sometimes we're surprised when unbelievers don't act like Jesus. I mean, they're they're dead in their sins. They can't obey these people. That people are uh, that Peter's preaching to. They don't even like Jesus' teaching. It's why he was crucified. It's why they crucified him in the first place. Peter does not tell them what they need to do for Jesus. He tells them what Jesus did for them. And here's your closing application and we're done. As you go and as you have conversation with, conversations with folks about Christ, be bold but gracious Stay close to the Bible. And if there's any question about whether or not this person is a Christian, I would encourage you to don't start by telling them what they need to do for Jesus. Tell them what Jesus did for them. That in eternity past, in God's divine, definite plan, He would send His Son to come and live a perfect life so that that perfection might be gifted to those who would believe. And then he died as a substitute on the cross so that all who would believe might have their sins paid for. And he rose from the grave so that we need not fear death and we, not, we need not fear the corruption of our bodies. But we know that one day we will be as he is. And we will see him face to face and enjoy fellowship with him in a world where all things are made new. Tell them that. Let's pray. Father God, we do ask for boldness. We ask that we would be changed and radically transformed by your gospel of grace. That we would, in the same way that we're eager to share a wonderful new restaurant we've discovered, or maybe a book we're currently really enjoying, Father, would we share your wondrous works you've done for us? Would our words be seasoned with grace? Would we stay close to your word? Would we trust it and know it and consume it more and more? And Father, would we be quick, as, as Peter says, that, 
as, as Paul says, rather, that, that, that one of the first things that he wants to know and proclaim is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Would we tell the world what he has done for us? We ask this in his most holy and precious name. Amen.